Let us turn now to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we thank you that you are one who does give ear to our words, that you do consider our groaning, that you give attention to the sound of our cry, that you are our King and our God. It is to you and to you alone that we pray, that we make our petitions, that we turn to, especially in in great trials and troubles. And we give you thanks for knowing that you hear us. You hear us in the morning. You hear us throughout the day. You hear us in the evening before we fall asleep. And indeed, uh, you neither slumber nor sleep. So you keep watch over us, even while we ourselves are unconscious. We thank you for that, even when we do not know what to pray. Your Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words. We thank you that we have our Lord Jesus Christ as our high priest, who intercedes for us. So there is never a time that we are out of your sight, time that we are not out of your mind. There's never a time in which, uh, whether it is our voices, that of the Holy Spirit, that of the Lord Jesus, are not coming to you on our behalf. What a wondrous thing to to think about, to, to meditate upon. For you are the great God and King, the one who is over all that exists, the one creator of all things. You are present here in this very sanctuary, as you are in the sanctuaries of churches throughout this world, as you are outside of sanctuaries, wherever your creation is, that is where you are. We cannot understand what it is to be present everywhere, what it is to know all things. But all that we, what we do know is really what matters that you would have us to know. So that you're here with us. You're listening to us. You're caring for us. And indeed, you're even within us. You say that you are a God who is far above all, and yet you are a God who is within the heart of those who are contrite in spirit. And so we confess our sins before you. We have broken your commandments. We have broken them by the neglect, doing that good that was before us. We have broken them unconsciously of breaking commandments when we were not even aware of it. We have also actively, consciously transgressed your commandments. We have no excuse. We cannot uh, try to rationalize what we have done. All that we can do is to look to our Lord Jesus Christ of his work upon that cross. We give you thanks for that work that was done once and for all, of that forgiveness of sins, for that work that continues on and on of interceding for us. So we may have assurance and rest, but you still hear us and you listen to us favorably. We present our request before you of praying for your work, your gospel to go forth in this world. 
We pray for our partners who are throughout this world with the gospel of Christ, who are making their sacrifices, making their sacrifices out of love. And we pray that they will bear great fruit. We thank you for the churches and the ministries in this area where your word is being faithfully proclaimed and faithfully taught. People are being brought into your kingdom and lives are being changed because of those whom you have raised up individually in his churches to carry out the work of Jesus Christ. We thank you in particular for the work of Atlas and for the the work uh, that we have had presented before us. Work that is truly making a difference, changing uh, people's lives and families' lives. Thank you for the men and women whom you have raised up and given them a great heart to serve their Lord Jesus through this ministry. Pray for it continue to grow. Pray that you would answer their prayers, that they will bear great fruit from their labors, not only of, of helping people have better lives, but taking sinners and sinners who repent of their sins and turn to Jesus Christ and become your very children. We know that is on their hearts, and we pray that you would answer their prayers. We pray for ourselves. We pray for those who continue to have illnesses, to have chronic pain, to to go through all different types of physical ailments and trials, those who are recovering from surgery. We pray for them. We pray for the, the daily uh, efforts that is needed to just to carry on in the midst of pain and, and illness. Pray that you would keep their faith strong, that you would uphold them, all the more that they would know your presence with them, and we pray with them for healing. We pray for those in troubled relationships, in troubled families, troubled friendships, and in different ways in which they're there are burdens because of, of anguish and, and perhaps old troubles that continue to haunt us. And we pray for the peace of Christ and, uh, to be with us and with our brothers and sisters and for wisdom and, and how to continue to, to show forth the spirit of Christ in difficult relationships. We pray for those who are in harm way and those who are in the military and at difficult places, and pray for their protection. For those who are first responders and disasters, and, and we pray for their protection and safety. And then, our Father, we, we just lift ourselves now before you as our great shepherd. You know what our needs are, the spoken needs and the unspoken. You know what we need at this very moment. We pray that when we open your word, And as we examine your word, all the more your Holy Spirit would so cause us to allow ourselves to be examined by that word. We need to be convicted where where we need to be convicted, that we would be lifted up, comforted, encouraged, so that all the more, all the more that we will grasp hold of the gospel of Christ and be true servants of Christ. In his name that we pray, amen. Well, for our scripture reading, we'll be reading from Matthew 11, verses uh, 2 through 6. And you'll also see that text in your bulletin, in, in an insert. 
You're also welcome to use uh, the church Bibles. Now, if you're visiting with us uh, and you're using your church Bibles, those are the NIV, which is, by the way, a good translation. But I'm using a different translation called the English Standard Version. Let us hear the word of God. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Leopards are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Well, we're beginning a a new series today. And the question for us as we go through these series, have you ever wondered what it would have been like to have been there where Jesus was, to have encountered Jesus, to have heard him speak, to have seen him do those, those miracles, to to listen to his teachings, what, what impact would that have had on you? Well, we're going to be kind of looking at that for the next few weeks, at least taking us uh, through Easter. And we're going to consider the, the testimonies of several characters in the Gospels who, who were there and who bear witness to our Lord. And our first character today is that of John the Baptist, who was uh, Jesus' cousin. So let's uh, begin again looking at that text with verse 2. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now, let's just take for a moment and look back at the the life and the ministry of John the Baptist, who he was. And we, we know that he himself had a miraculous birth. His mother was barren. She was well past the age of childbearing. And nevertheless, just like Sarah, of ages past, she had conceived a child, which is John. And the angel that had appeared to his father, Zechariah, had given this prophecy about John. He will be great before the Lord. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And then after John was born, his father Zechariah prophesied over him with these words. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. So the next time we we read of uh, John the Baptist and Scripture, he's gone out and he is carrying out this mission. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent, For the kingdom of heaven is at hand, for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So 
John comes. He's fulfilling the prophecy, all that was said about him, going out there and proclaiming the way for the Lord. Now, it mentions in here that term repent, and that summarizes well John's message and his work of preparing the way for the Lord. John preached repentance, and then he baptized those who were convicted, and that was a sign of their repentance. And that's why several times it'll be noted in Scripture that John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, how people are making a new start. So this was how John was preparing the way for the Lord. His mission was to take a rebellious people, turn them back to the Lord so that they are prepared when that Lord comes to them. The Messiah was, going, was coming. He was going to save Israel. He was going to save Israel from her oppressors. But before he could do that, God's own covenant people needed to turn from their own rebellion, get their hearts made ready. Kind of think of it this way of John's work. It's, it's like that of a town getting ready. A very distinguished visitor is coming. Uh, and uh, I think up in my town, back in Philadelphia, they're getting ready next year or later on this year, the Pope is coming. What are they going to be doing? They're going to be cleaning up that setting. They're going to be getting things fixed up. Uh, the cathedral, Peter and Paul Cathedral there, you can be sure they're working on that now, getting everything ready for this distinguished visitor. Well, that's what John was doing. He was getting the nation of Israel ready to receive her king. And the difference is, he's not concerned about the outside. He's working on the inner hearts of the people. So John understood his mission. He even understood the prophecy that he was fulfilling about himself. When he's doing his work, he's preaching, he's doing his baptism, some Jewish authorities come to him and say, explain yourself. Who are you? Are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? And he says, no, I'm not any of those. Well, then he said, who are you? And he says, I'm the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. You go back there, that's me. Okay. The Messiah is on his way. John's that messenger sent to proclaim his coming, get everybody ready. But here's our question. Just who was it that John thought the Messiah was going to be? That's what brings our passage into play. Because as our passage shows us, here we have is the one who's who's fulfilling prophecy, proclaiming the way of the Messiah, and now he's actually expressing doubt as to who that Messiah might be. John wants to know, will the real Messiah please stand up? So why the doubt? Evidently, Jesus is not fitting the profile of what John thought the job description was. Okay? So let's look further to try to understand what John's expectations were. Now, Matthew, just like the other gospel said, he, he crystallizes well John's teaching about the Messiah. Here's what he says about him. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. 
So the baptism of the Messiah is what's going to separate him from John and, and anybody else. Now, John was clearly an imposing figure. I mean, he, he certainly was a no-holes-barred preacher. It must have been intimidating, and I'm not sure how comfortable certainly I would have felt walking into a river and having John's hands lay hold of me. Okay. But as John noted, look, the best I can do is I can baptize you with, with water. The Messiah is coming. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So John baptized with water to mark a sinner's repentance. The Messiah is going to baptize with, Holy, with the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit is going to cleanse the sinner from sin. He's going to empower him to live fully for his Lord. He's going to baptize with the Spirit. He's going to baptize with fire. And that fire would remove the dross of sin. So again, John's baptism was an outer baptism. It's water on on flesh. The Messiah's baptism would be an inner baptism. Now we see the fulfillment of this, by the way, when we go to Acts and there's Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes down upon his followers It comes in the form of fire over their heads. That is the fulfillment of what John said would happen. But I don't know that's how John visualized how it was going to play out. Here's what he more likely had in mind. And it's the same vision, actually, that most of his contemporaries would have had as well as they were looking for the Messiah to come. They're expecting God to send his anointed one. That's what Messiah means, is anointed one. And that Messiah was going to come, and he's going to deliver his people from all the earthly oppressors. In this particular case, it would be the Romans. God's kingdom would be established upon the earth. All of Israel's enemies would be thrown down under God's judgment. And even with Israel... You know, Israel was to have been all alone God's holy nation. Even Israel was going to have judgment start within her own domain. Because all of those who belong to her, but remain unrepentant sinners, they were going to be destroyed. Listen to, again, John's message, this time in Matthew 3.12. He's speaking of the Messiah. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. That's what John is expecting to come. I mean, to come out of the Messiah. Now for John, that includes the hypocritical religious and political leaders in particular. Again, reading from Matthew 3. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John is saying this. Look, you think I'm tough. You just wait. 
You just wait for that Messiah when he comes and he's going to show you what real baptism is. If you're not repentant, you're going to get it then. Judgment is coming. Well, one day, lo and behold, the Messiah does come. He walks right up to John and surprises John, saying, baptize me. Now, John is completely taken aback by this. Like, you need to be baptizing me. You don't need to be baptized. But he, nevertheless, he obeys. And then John says that when he had done that, he saw the sign that this was the Messiah. He had been told, probably by the Holy Spirit, that when you see the Spirit come down upon uh, the one whom you baptize in the form of a dove, that'll be him. So he sees that. Holy Spirit comes down, not as fire, but as a dove. He descends upon Jesus. Okay. The moment is at hand. Imagine the excitement for John. Okay? That real baptism of fire is about to start. What happens? That Holy Spirit leads Jesus out into the wilderness. Soon afterwards, John is placed in prison where he languishes. Now, it's not clear how long he remains in prison before you know what happens to him eventually. He's beheaded. But he's there long enough so that Jesus has started his ministry, and he gets reports from his, from John gets report from uh, his own disciples. They come and visit him in prison and tells him about what's going on. And so John is he's listening to these reports, and something's not right. Okay, it's just not fitting the expectations. He's not hearing about judgment coming down. Nobody's getting destroyed, wiped out. You know, they're, they're not. They're, they're, neither the Romans are, and, and those hypocritical religious leaders whom he just hates. Everything just seems to be going along okay. And he hears about, well, he hears about healings and, and kind of these the blind being given sight and, and stuff like that. He's only hearing. I mean, they're they're important things, but they're just kind of positive things. And so he just sends a couple of his disciples to say, are you, are you the Messiah? Are you, are you the one who is to come? Or should we be looking for someone else? Now what a curious scenario, isn't it? Here's the one who is sent to show the way, to prepare the way. There he is, there he is. He's the one who's described in, in the Gospel of John. The one who's going to bear witness about the light so that all might believe through him. And what we're finding out is that his own mind is darkened. He's not sure this is the light. So the question is asked, and then we see Jesus' reply in verse 4 and 5. And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Now, what an interesting answer, isn't it? He doesn't just say, no, you can go back and tell your cousin, look, I'm the right guy, just be patient. He just says to them, watch what I do. Okay. And they, they do. They, they, they see him uh, performing these, these miracles. And it seems to be that what he's communicating is, look, 
course on him say, see how powerful I am. Look at these miracles that I can accomplish. Only the Messiah could do something like that. Now, it is true that miraculous signs are, are actually signs of Jesus being the Messiah. Okay. But it's not the fact simply that they're miraculous. What matters is the type of works that he is doing. And he wants John to make that connection. John knows his scriptures. He particularly knows the prophet Isaiah well. And he's expecting that when disciples go back and tell him what they saw, John's gonna, he's going to put it together. Now, what, what is he going to put together? Well, earlier I had referred to John's response to the messengers when I said, you know, he knew exactly who he was, that he quoted from Isaiah and said, that's me. So John knew Isaiah's prophecies. He, he would have studied them. And he would have known these passages from Isaiah 35, verses 5 through 6, speaking of the Messiah. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And then particularly he would have known this passage in Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Remember, John had had pointed to Isaiah to say, that's who I am. Now Jesus is saying, okay, go to Isaiah 61. That's me. That's me carrying out my ministry. So Jesus is not simply performing miracles. He's performing the miracles and carrying out the ministry that was predicted of the Messiah in Isaiah. Make him the blind to see, the deaf hear, the, the lame walk. He even adds a miracle to top all of those others. He raises the dead. He's probably referring to the widow's son in in the town of Nain, whom he had raised. Or perhaps the synagogue ruler's daughter, Jairus, whom he had raised. Now, note something else here, the common theme about all of these miracles. They're all about restoration, healing, bringing to life what had died. Jesus is preaching the good news to the poor. This is good news of God restoring his people, God healing his people, lifting, raising them up. And so he proclaims liberty. He's opening the prison doors of those who are trapped in their sins. That's the prison that they're in. And then he's actually proclaiming liberty, and he's freeing those who have been literally trapped by evil spirits. He's casting out demons. So again, Jesus is expecting John, connect the dots, John. Look back to Isaiah. That's your favorite book, okay? Jesus is announced near, has announced near the beginning of his ministry. He had said, Isaiah 61, that's me. It's being fulfilled. He read exactly what I read. But I omitted one line in verse 2, just like Jesus actually omitted that line. The next line in Isaiah 2, after he says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, 
He says, and the day of vengeance of our God. And that's what John's looking for. That vengeance. He's looking for the judgment that is proclaimed in Isaiah. In fact, he's so focused on it, I think he neglected, he kind of forgot about the restoration part. Maybe even the salvation which he himself, John the Baptist, had proclaimed. But because that vengeance was not being fulfilled as John thought it was supposed to be fulfilled, he's beginning to have doubts. And so Jesus ends with a little bit of a rebuke for John. And it's, he's wanting John to, to go, you know, realize the, the error that he's made. He closes here in verse 6. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now Jesus is referring to another verse in Isaiah, chapter 8, verse 14. Where it speaks of the Messiah, he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. He's sending a message to John. John, don't you yourself fall into that same trap, stumble over that same rock as your hypocritical religious leaders have done. Perhaps John is guilty. Perhaps. But I do have to say that the passage following what we have looked at, Jesus praises John as the greatest of all the prophets. And no doubt we can be assured that John would have gotten that message. But then again, just what was that message? I want us to focus on that for a moment. Again, Jesus has stated it from that Isaiah 61 passage. To bring good news to the poor. To proclaim liberty to the captives. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And think about John's message. What was John's message? Repent. That was actually Jesus' message. Jesus' first word when he preached was repent. And then he said, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, here's the distinction between these two. John urged repentance because he thought judgment is at hand. That's what he thought when the kingdom of heaven was coming. That's judgment. Jesus, who is that one who is to come, preached repentance, urging everyone to turn because salvation, salvation is at hand. That is what the kingdom of heaven signified. Now, there would be a time for judgment. Okay? It's going to come. But now, now that the bridegroom has come, now that Christ has come, the Messiah has come, now is the time for salvation. As Jesus spoke elsewhere in John chapter 12, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judgment, or has a judge. The word that I have spoken would judge him on the last day. But now I have come for salvation. The good news, the gospel of salvation, that's the message of the church of Jesus Christ. 
The gospel is, is the identifying proclamation. That's what makes us a church distinguished from anything else out there is proclaiming the gospel. There's a, a church up in a large church building. It's up in New Jersey near Philadelphia. And as you go to it, you see this, this very large sign on the walls. And it's very easy to read even as you're driving your car. It's the Ten Commandments. That's it. It's got the Ten Commandments out there. Now look, it's important for people to know the Ten Commandments. Okay? And they are important for us even as we proclaim the gospel. But that is not the sum. That is not the message that the church is sent forth to give. The message is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he has come to save those who have broken the commandments. The Ten Commandments justly condemn us. But it is the gospel that mercifully saves us. And whenever the church's primary message becomes the law, what it invariably does is it leads the members of that church to believe that the gospel is about our efforts to be really good. And the result is always self-righteousness. And you can see it just what we become angry about. We become angry when we see those other folks out there, not because of thinking of God being offended, but they're offending us because they're not being good like we are being. Okay? That's what the law will do to you. The law is essential. Okay? It's essential to teach what is good. It's essential to help restrain us from our sins. I'm just giving you a good Westminster Confession teachings here. But most of all, what it's important for is to convict us of our complete need for a Savior. And the good news of the Gospel is this. The Savior has come. He's here. You know, we've got to be careful of not falling into the same trap of John the Baptist. John had a righteous anger. It was a proper anger. He had a righteous anger at the sin around him. He was jealous for God. He was angry against religious hypocrites and against blatant sinners. Indeed, here was his problem. He got so angry that he got caught up with judgment even to the point of forgetting that the one who is coming was coming to save. And John should have known better. He knew what the mission of the anointed servant was to be. It was John the Baptist who, and we're told in, in John chapter 1, that when he saw Jesus coming to him, he said, Behold, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But somehow, he let anger against sin turn his focus on judgment. Jesus hated sin, but his anger made him all the more determined to serve sinners, or to save sinners. Now again, there's a time to judge. There is indeed, there will be a time for the dreadful and just wrath of God that will fall upon this sinful world. But now, now is the time to proclaim the good news of salvation. There will be a time 
to rejoice in the justice of God that will come against evildoers. But now is the time to pray for these sinners, sinners, to pray for evildoers, to be given ears to hear the gospel. Now is the time to pray that they be given to the eyes to see that lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Let's pray. We do give you thanks and praise, our God, that you would open the eyes of such sinners as us, that you would open our ears, that you would convict our hearts of stone and make them hearts of flesh. You did not save us because you saw something better in us than you saw in anyone else. You did not save us because you saw that we would be more likely uh, to respond. You, in your own counsel, in your own will, just as you had told Israel that it was because you loved Israel that you would give your love to Israel, so in the same way to us. May we have that same heart of mercy and keep before us the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Keep before us that that is our mission, to pronounce salvation, to to call people to look upon Jesus Christ, to pray that they would be given the ears to hear, that they also would be given hearts that would be convicted. Oh, we pray for them to behold the Lamb of God who could take away their very sins. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.